What are the pros and cons of AI's integration into our institutions, political systems, culture, and society? How can we develop AI systems that are more respectful, ethical, and sustainable? Dr. Sasha Muccioni is a leading scientist at the Nexus of Artificial Intelligence, Ethics, and Sustainability, with a PhD in AI and a decade of research and industry expertise. She spearheads research, consults, and utilizes capacity building to elevate the sustainability of AI systems. As a founding member of Climate Change AI and a board member of Women in Machine Learning, Sachel is passionate about catalyzing impactful change, organizing events, and serving as a mentor to underrepresented minorities within the AI community. Sasha Lucioni, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. So you're a researcher who studies AI's impacts on society. We know that data centers are crucial for powering AI, and already centers account for up to 1.5% of global electricity use, according to the International Energy Agency. And with the rapid growth of artificial intelligence, this will significantly rise. Your recent TED Talk was titled, AI is dangerous, but not for the reasons you think. AI won't kill us, but that doesn't make it trustworthy. Can you elaborate? Yeah, so I guess a lot of people must have heard a lot about existential risk and AGI and things like that. And I mean, some people do believe in it. I personally don't. But I think that the debate is more is not what's going to happen in 5, 10, 20 years, whenever the singularity will come. But it's more like what's happening right now. And my TED Talk and my work is really about figuring out how right now AI is you know, using resources like energy and emitting greenhouse gases, how it's using our data without our consent. So really focusing on the here and now impacts. And I feel that if we develop systems that are more respectful, more ethical, more sustainable, that we can help future generations of AI be a less of a risk to society. And that transparency, as you outlined, what is Bloom, the big science initiative? And how does that work within the hugging face ecosystem? So Bloom, it's a large language model that we trained as part of the big science project, which was a one year long project that aimed to develop the first open large language model, because until Bloom came along, all of the large language models that were being trained were coming out of big tech companies and they weren't as transparent. They weren't as forthcoming about their data or you know, the actual model wasn't really accessible. So big science came together as a way for volunteers from all, all over the world. We had like over a thousand people come together to gather data that was more multilingual. And of course, in terms of copyright and consent, we checked the licensing on the data. Then we made sure that the model had like multiple languages. We made sure that the compute that we were using was less carbon intensive. And so we got an, a training grant, a compute grant from the French government. And we trained the model on a, a French public like supercomputer that was very low carbon and that actually reused a lot of the heat because like these data centers get really hot. It was using the heat to heat buildings on a university campus. So we really kind of made that choice very, very consciously to use low carbon energy and Part of my work was to make sure that we were measuring all these things and we did a lot of experiments to figure out where the energy was being used, where we could kind of be more efficient. Uh, and so we, we published a paper around this essentially. And we found that finally, because of all these choices, the final carbon footprint of Bloom was, I think, 20 times less than similar models that were trained without this in mind. Indeed, I've been told that it's unsustainable long term for everyone to be using AI at the levels that we are, unless there's some kind of neural wetware where we can adapt it to the energy efficiency of our brains. I mean, I don't know how that would work. So I think it's kind of important to think about the fact that originally neural networks were inspired by neurons, really by our brains. But 
the way like fundamentally that brains work, that human or animal brains work is really different than AI models currently. And brains are really quite efficient. Like for example, we won't be using all of our neurons all the time. They'll be specialized. Like if we're recognizing a face or if we're speaking or if we're drawing or if we're watching a movie or reading a book, it's different parts of our brain and you know, there are different zones and it's relatively well understood. AI models are not like that. I mean, we call them neural networks and they do have connections that can be seen as similar to neurons, but they usually use all of them all the time. So for example, when you're training a large language model, you're passing the information through every single connection in the neural network. And then finally, once it's trained, then certain connections will be more reinforced than others. So there is a certain structure that emerges, but it's really not as, as specialized, I guess, as the human brain. And I think that's kind of the core of the issue because whereas we can kind of use a portion of our brain depending on the activity, neural networks don't have that built-in efficiency. And so they're not efficient by, by design, let's say. And so people are trying to do different techniques, different approaches that aim to make them more efficient, more like the human brain. But I think that fundamentally we should kind of ditch this metaphor. And I mean, maybe it did work for a while, but now it definitely doesn't work. And we should focus on the actual architecture of neural networks, the actual structure and, and trying to make that more efficient instead of trying to make a parallel with the human brain, just because, you know, the, the parallel is, is, is kind of, it's been lost along the way, as I see it. And maybe I was misunderstanding that someone said the way forward was that we need more devices, not just outside of our bodies, but on our bodies so that we could adapt AI to the natural efficiency of our brains, which I think runs around the energy of a light bulb. Yeah, I think there are endeavors that are essentially bio-inspired AI, and it can definitely work. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I don't think it's kind of a one-size-fits-all solution. So it might work for certain. So it's, it would be like the human brain, like maybe for a certain task for like, I don't know, for example, recognizing faces, you could have that run in an efficient way. But if you want these like general purpose models like GPT, which people are so excited about nowadays, it's really hard to make them efficient just because they're so big. Yes. And going back to the carbon footprint, there are a lot of potential efficiencies of what AI might be able to do to help us expand regenerative agriculture or projects regarding carbon sequestration or a regenerative ecology. Yeah, I mean, the way I got into this field was really working on the environmentally beneficial applications of AI. And I, I do believe that's a really impactful way of, of using AI techniques because there's so much data about the climate. There's so much satellite data. There's sensor data. There's really a lot of, and I mean, AI is really powered by data. So I think that there's a lot of promise there. But I think that the way to go about this is really to work with domain experts. I mean, so a couple of years ago, Three years ago now, we wrote this paper called Tackling Climate Change with Machine Learning, and it's essentially 100 pages. And we were almost 20 authors that were trying to go through all the different ways in which machine learning, AI can help fight climate change. And since then, it's really become almost a field of study and on its own, which is really great. But something that we emphasized a lot in our paper is the importance of working with domain experts. So instead of, you know, thinking that, oh, I'm going to solve climate change, I'm going to, you know, figure out all these problems that people have been working on for decades, to start by learning about climate science, ecology, whatever it is you're working on, and trying to figure out how AI can fit in, because AI is only ever going to be part of the puzzle. It's never going to solve the problem on its own, but it can be a tool for solving the problem. But it always has to be guided by domain knowledge. And that's really important to not 
you know, be siloed in in AI spheres, but to work with other fields. And, and that can be difficult because, you know, they don't come to the same events you come to, or they don't necessarily have the same terminology. And that's where the challenges lie, essentially. I was happy to see the executive order that Biden signed. And in Europe, we've seen similar policies about setting up guardrails. How difficult it is to actually implement some of those guidelines? The thing is that, for example, the executive order is still a relatively high level. So it does need a lot of operationalization by different parts of the government. So like the National Standards Institute, they, they need to actually take this order and, and make it into actions and make it into concrete things that they'll do. And so I think that's where things are currently at, especially with the EU AI Act or the executive order. Like we have this signal that's top down. But now people have to figure out how do we actually legislate and enforce and measure and evaluate. So there's a lot of kind of day-to-day problems that haven't been solved because we don't really have standards for AI. We don't really have legal precedent. We don't have a lot of things that have to be figured out first. So I think that we're really in this kind of intermediate phase where people are, are scrambling to try to figure out how to put this into action. And as you think about the future of education and our AI co-creators, what are your reflections? Some people are saying, you know, teachers might be replaced by robots. These are some of these things that people think may be on the horizon. What are your thoughts on that? So actually, I did my PhD on AI and education. And even back then, I mean, this was all over over 10 years ago, I was really skeptical of this replacement because there's so much to, to teaching and education that's not mechanical, that's not procedural, that's really based on communication and empathy and understanding. And so I think that maybe we could have, for example, Duolingo. Duolingo is super popular, but I don't think it really replaces a teacher, a language teacher or practicing a language or, you know, going and getting immersed in a language. So I think it's similar. AI can help. Like what I worked on in my PhD was it's called intelligent tutoring systems, which is essentially like you focus on a topic, you focus on a specific thing you want to improve. And then practice that and essentially generate on the fly adaptive exercises so that the learner really kind of hones in on the specific skill or a specific concept. But that doesn't mean that the intelligent tutoring system will be able to figure out what concept is missing for a learner. That's really where a teacher comes in and says, oh, I think you're having trouble with conjugation or, or multiplication or whatever it is. And then you can really assign exercises. And so I think that even with the, the best of AI or at least the current methods that we're using for AI, There'll only ever be this adaptive practicing phase. They're not going to really replace the teaching, the, the individual kind of assessment aspect of things. And although I've seen that AI can sort of read certain facial expressions, and there's a lot of things that I thought that was in the realm of intuitive intelligence that I think can also be learned. So I'm being surprised every day. Well, yeah, I think that the actually the whole emotion recognition and facial recognition is really a slippery slope, but people don't express emotions in a standard way. Some people are more expressive. For some people, you know, they'll smile less or more. And I think that it's really kind of like modern day phrenology that we think that we can use AI to recognize facial expressions or emotions. And all these different software, especially that popped up during the pandemic, I feel for kind of long distance monitoring of students, especially during exams, it has a lot of weaknesses, it has a lot of shortcomings. You know, it 
just because someone, I don't know, looks up at the ceiling doesn't mean they're like cheating and things like that. And I think that we kind of tend to get very excited about AI and applications and we don't really do proper testing to figure out, you know, I saw articles about if, if people live in a household that has more noise or younger siblings or parents walking around, then they would get flagged as cheaters by these Proctor AI tools. But of course, that's, you know, that wasn't the case. And, and same thing, for example, when it comes to detecting AI generated content, the current tools that exist um, and that are used by teachers teachers in order to check whether their students were using ChatGPT to do their homework are very biased and they tend to penalize, for example, non-native speakers of languages who will make mistakes and then the system will say, oh, this is AI generated. And so I think that there's a lot of flaws that we really need to be conscious of when we're deploying these tools and we shouldn't get kind of just too excited about using AI without without understanding the shortcomings of the tools. Indeed. ChatGPT can write an essay, but when it's an essay about your own experience, it can't do that. And back on that subject of the environment, you know, we're living in the center of the city, decade of rapid transformation. We hear a lot about creating smart cities, smart buildings, but so many people have little idea of where their future is going when it comes to housing, transport, climate, education, working at home, heat waves, storm surges. So what do you envisage for our cities and the rapid transition and planning and cutting edge adaptation that needs to take place? And how might AI help us get there? I definitely think that in cities where there is data, AI can be used. I know that, for example, Montreal, the city where I live, we have a data portal. And for years, they've been gathering data about, for example, heat waves and tree planting and sewage and all sorts of stuff. And definitely there's things to be done. AI can be used and things can be developed. But once again, it has to be done in a way that is respectful and like to make sure that, for example, in this case, it's the city that's gathering the data. So, I mean, it, it's not, for example, personal data. It's really kind of a high level sensors and things like that. But I know of a case in Toronto, for example, where I grew up, where they tried to have a, a smart boardwalk kind of neighborhood, and then they outsourced this to a tech company. And then they set up a bunch of cameras. And then people got really upset because, for example, every time that I mean, hypothetically, when you would enter this smart boardwalk, you would get filmed and the facial recognition would be automatic, et cetera, et cetera. And so finally, the project never happened because there was so much backlash in the smart city <laughs> setup that they had and the role of consent and the role of, of individuals and all of this. So, so I think that there's really a tension in getting insights versus respecting personal freedoms and privacy. So definitely there's no kind of one size fits all solution, but I think that working with cities because you know i definitely think that cities are kind of the main hubs here they're the ones that have the different services and they have the, the experts in city planning and things like that so working with those experts and you know taking existing processes and, and improving them or finding you know where ai can be used to improve them like for example i know that montreal has issues with the, actually the sewage systems that are, are getting old and they've had a lot of cases of failures so for example what you can do is you can send sensors kind of that will scan like with radars scan the sewage systems and then you, you can predict essentially where maintenance should be done based on, on this data and that's something that ai can do really well and in the case of sewage systems there's no kind of privacy aspect that we should be worried about but you can do preventive maintenance and so i think identifying use cases like that like given the specific use case of montreal and, and the weaknesses that the system has and the the existing failures that have been identified how can we use AI to help them do their job better instead of just going from the oldest sewer to the newest sewer? Maybe we could actually like get ahead and do predictive maintenance based on sensor data. 
And we've been talking about guardrails, and sometimes it takes time for these things to be implemented. So on a personal level, what are the guardrails you put on your own activities in terms of, oh, you know that the stat is being collected? Well, for example, I actually don't have any smart devices at home, any series Alexas and things like that. And I'm always turning off the location. I only turn on the location on my phone if I'm you know, really looking for where I should go, if I'm lost somewhere. And I use... For example, Ecosia, which is a search engine that plants trees actually to offset the emissions of your searches. I don't use Google. And so, like, I mean, I try to do my best. I also think that I'm not really a techno skeptic as such, but I believe in using technology when it's useful for the purpose of what I'm doing, right? I'm not going to just use tech, AI or any kind of tech just because it's there. So I think it's really you know, maybe it's because of work in this field that I, I don't get as excited. I'm like, okay, Chad GPT is cool. I mean, I definitely agree that it's interesting and it can give cool ideas, but I'm not going to use it for, you know, every single thing I'm writing or to get me ideas about my work. But for example, a use case that I did find interesting for Chad GPT is once I've written an, a scientific article, for example, to brainstorm ideas for titles. So, you know, once you've written it, you can kind of paste the summary, the abstract, and then get it to give you interesting ideas of titles. And after playing around with it, you can find something that's funny or, you know, that's more witty than something I would have come up with because I'm just, I'm not very good at coming up with article titles. But once again, it's, it's a specific use case. So I think that it's important to stay critical of technology and as well not to use it to create summaries of documents that are sensitive or for answering questions about health conditions and stuff like that, which I think people do maybe just out of curiosity, but that isn't necessarily what the tools are made for, right? And I wondered if you're uploading your own information, it's not scanning everything out there. I, I don't know how to calculate that carbon. How much should I allow myself? I have a very low carbon budget and I would want to know. So it's actually really frustrating because we don't even know how, how big ChatGPT is as a model. We don't know where it's running. We don't know how much energy it's using. There's really, there's a couple of estimates out there, but they're not based on actual data that was provided by OpenAI. So it's really hard to say. I mean, the recent study I did is that, for example, we compared a task that was done with a generative AI model and a non-generative AI model. And we found that like for something like web search, essentially it's called information retrieval for something like that, switching between a more, I guess, old school AI model to a generative model will come with like a 20 to 30 times more energy usage for the same task because instead of finding existing information, for example, you're generating new information. So essentially, it takes more effort, it takes more energy. So I think that, you know, for tasks that are inherently creative, like, for example, generating a title or something that's very, you know, that you need to, to generate new content for, sure, using ChatGPT or another maybe open source language model makes sense. But for tasks that are already well done using non-generative models like web search, I don't see the point in putting generative AI in there just because it's cool. But sadly, once again, I don't have the numbers for ChatGPT specifically. I would love to have them. It'd be great to know when they're going to release that data. And I'm wondering what your reflections are on another thing, you know, now that so much of even intellectual labor can be automated through these large language models. What are your reflections on the future of work? Yeah, it's actually quite interesting because I feel that the big revolution around ChatGPT wasn't technological as such. I mean, yes, it was probably an interesting engineering effort, innovation, but actually where they did do a lot of work or had a lot of work done was a technique called RLHF or reinforcement learning from human feedback. And essentially it's a way of crowdsourcing AI model training to 
well, crowdsource workers, right? So essentially for something like eight or nine months before ChatGPT came out, they took a, a model that was trained on text data and then they got people to interact with it and to ask questions. And, and during this process, people would give feedback. So, oh, like I asked this question, like what's a chocolate chip cookie recipe? And then ChatGPT version zero would give a chocolate chip cookie recipe and then the person would actually fix it saying, oh no, well, three eggs is too many and no, you need like half a cup of butter or whatever and then feed that back into the model and then the model will get better. And so this was done for thousands of hours by thousands of people and then ChatGPT became what it was and, and very good. And so I feel like this invisible human labor is not recognized anywhere. And so as is usually the case, you know, most of the people who were doing this work were, were not in the global north were kind of Kenya and, and Indonesia and things like that. And you, know, you don't really hear about them. You don't hear about their effort isn't really recognized and they were paid a very low amount of, of money for this great job of, of making this model amazing. And so I think that's what worries me is not such as, as like labor will get replaced, but we're going to have this whole new economy of, of gig workers working precarious jobs and getting underpaid to make these models better. And so really artificial intelligence is not artificial it's human intelligence that was memorized by the model that was kind of hoovered up absorbed by these ai models and then now it's getting regurgitated back at us and we're like wow chat gpt is so smart but how many thousands of human hours were needed in order to make chat gpt so smart and on that note about the future of work and whether we're going to have jobs in the future because we're replaced by all of these ever more intelligent systems. On the other side of it, people are discussing, oh, it could be used for wealth distribution. I don't see that currently. I see a concentration of power and concentration of wealth. I mean, if you just look at the way that AI has developed in the last couple of years, it's mostly big tech companies that have profited from this AI revolution and mostly you know, the global south populations whose labor has been exploited by these companies. So currently I see especially large language models as making the situation worse, making the digital divide worse, making the precariousness of, of, of human labor worse. And so I think that, you know, when people say, oh, AI is going to help everyone or, or change humanity or, or all these claims, they don't realize to what extent, you know, even people don't have access to the internet in some places or, or cell phones or the fact that the data used by AI models is not representative of many parts of the world and it's mostly in English and it's mostly, you know, for example, the data generated on the internet is mostly by educated white male users of the internet who will post on forums or make websites. But, you know, there's whole generations that are not represented in this data, whole regions. And so I think that all these claims of the universality of AI or how it's going to help everyone are quite techno-optimistic. Yeah, it's a bit utopian. And it's interesting, you know, a lot of these subjects that were kind of out of fashion, I mean, philosophy and what gives our life meaning, you know, theological questions, these had been neglected. And I think now it's quite interesting to see there's a kind of resurgence of questions like, what is consciousness all, all around AI? And how do you know that you're conscious? I think that, I mean, I have a master's in cognitive science. And so I spent a couple of years really studying this. And there's really a lot of unanswered questions. And I think that now when we're talking about machine consciousness or machine intelligence or all of this, we overlook a lot of the fundamental work that has been done in neuroscience and philosophy over over centuries, millennia in the case of philosophy. And now we're like, oh, well, whatever, Lambda is conscious or ChatGPT is intelligent, but maybe we don't have a single definition of, of consciousness or intelligence, but we do definitely have some definitions of intelligence. And I don't think that current AI models are neither conscious nor intelligent based on these definitions. And so I think that 
we should be a little bit more aware of this work. And the thing is, I mean, it's just the way that I guess science is structured in the sense of computer scientists tend not to hang out with philosophers a lot, or they don't really take philosophy classes as part of their training or ethics classes, for example. And I think that would be really useful, especially in the case of AI technologies, because you're making these tools and you're making assumptions about these tools and you're deploying them in society and you use words like intelligence and consciousness that people will then you know, misuse and, and start making assumptions that aren't true, essentially. And speaking about how we deploy AI in society, you'd been talking about deployment in cities and Canada, and there are other approaches in different countries, like in Dubai, I guess they control it more, same in China. So what are your reflections on the different approaches on governance and the race for AI dominance going forward? Well, I think that governance is still an ongoing process. I was actually reading the Chinese AI Act yesterday, but there's a lot to unpack there. And I think that the approaches that are being taken by different countries are very different, which makes sense, I guess. But also we are starting to see a lot of geopolitical battles, right? I saw at some point it was like there was an order not to sell GPUs to, to certain countries because GPUs are kind of used for AI. And so I think that we're starting to see a lot of political tension in this area. But there's it's just all entangled. There's the technological aspect, there's the geopolitical aspect, there's the governance aspect, there's the legal aspect, right? But all the thing is with AI is that it, it kind of transcends borders. So for example, if you did want to train an AI model on, I don't know, for example, I, I remember at some point it was like British data. Great Britain wanted to make a, a British AI model. Well, it's English, right? So how would you possibly filter out American English, Australian English, and, and Great British English? You can't, right? It's really hard. And so it's like all of the discussions that we're having and all of these tensions, there's also like technological barriers. So for me, it's interesting to see how this will all play out, essentially. And, you know, we're talking about the positives and maybe the worst possible outcomes. What would a utopia look like to you? I don't really believe in utopia, but I, I do believe in a balance. So essentially, I would love it if there was a more democratic approach to AI, that there was less concentration of power, that it was more open. So essentially, that the way that we develop AI was more transparent. That would be really great. But the way I see it is not going in this direction. It's actually going in the reverse direction. We're seeing less transparency and less sharing, actually. So AI models are, are now such a hot commodity that people are, are being much more territorial with them, which is a really sad trend to see. And we've been talking about education. Could you share some of your reflections on teachers who are important to you and started you on this path? Yeah, I think my PhD supervisor was a really positive force in my life. Actually, I've had the luck of, of having a lot of strong female role models along my career. And so, for example, so her as a PhD supervisor in the years since, I've worked with a lot of really strong women that supported me. For example, Kate Crawford, who's an AI researcher. So I, I definitely had a, a lot of support. And as you think about the future and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I think it's really important to say, once again, skeptical of AI, but also learn about it and see it not as some magical thing, but more as a technology that works, but also doesn't work, of technology that comes with costs and benefits. So I think it's really important to stay aware of this change that is happening and not just take it as a given, essentially, because young people are you know, defining like they're using AI almost all the time and, and it's almost integrated. It's, it's, it's part of their lives nowadays. And maybe they don't stop and think about, you know, what is this data that I'm sending to TikTok or Snapchat? What is happening? This filter, you know, it doesn't work as well as for me as for a friend of mine that's either female or has darker skin or, you know, is wearing glasses, like things like that. I think it's really important. And it's something that I try to do with my own kids. I mean, they're not teenagers yet. They're still younger, but to talk through like, okay, well, 
you know, we we searched for this on Google. They really like searching for answers to questions, right? And I'm always like, okay, well, you know, let's start with Google or, or some other search engine, but then let's go into an encyclopedia and let's try to compare the answers and let's try to think this through. And I think that kind of critical thinking is going to be more and more important. Like, oh, someone sent me a video. Is it a real video? <laughs> someone, you know, sent me an image. Is this actually AI generated or real? And it's going to be really important to start questioning things, especially things on social media. Oh, definitely. And also to understand that we have that sense of agency too, that there are people, there's people behind. It's not like AI is this thing running free. There are people who own those companies. And just to be skeptical and know that maybe we can push back and reclaim our agency. Exactly. Thank you, Sasha Lushoni, for your important research into climate smart AI by helping us understand what we value, where we're going, and consider possible outcomes. We can ensure positive futures. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you. Hi, I'm Sebastian Klassen. After listening to Dr. Sasha Lucioni and Mia Funk's discussion on artificial intelligence, its impact on society, and how we can utilize AI to promote environmental sustainability, my curiosity about AI developed only further. My interest in AI and contemporary technology advancements truly began when I decided to read Ray Kurzweil's The Singularity is Near, a book I highly recommend if you want to learn more about AI's function, the singularity, and the projected progression of a superintelligence. The Singularity is Near defines the singularity as a hypothetical point in time where technological advancements transcend human understanding and become uncontrollable. The results of such would ultimately put humanity at some sort of existential risk, and naturally, I was inclined to explore these topics further. Nonetheless, Dr. Lucioni claims she is aware of the technological singularity and what might come in the next several decades. Still, she is more interested in these advancements in the present and their implications to humanity as both individuals and populations and to modern science. This drew me away from thinking of AI and technology so far ahead in the future, and instead reflected on how technology has exponentially advanced over the past few years and how it is changing the already accepted socio-political customs. Dr. Lucioni's ideas on AI being used as a medium of data collection, organization, and interpretation, and as an agent of environmental protection, shifted my focus to a more positive review of the establishment of artificial intelligence. However, I still find it unsettling that the technological intelligence systems that are proposed to us by large avarice corporations as a sort of gift of enlightenment or stress relief or proposed as some environmental savior are still being profited off and further enlarged and developed despite the severe environmental consequences that the manufacturing and maintaining of these huge machines might have. For that, I must give credit to Dr. Lucioni for developing Bloom, a multilingual language model that had a carbon footprint roughly 20 times smaller than other models. Dr. Lucioni refers to various concerns about upcoming advancements in artificial intelligence, such as how AI and technology might interfere with or redefine education, how AI and unwarranted users may have access to information that should be protected by the Data Protection and Privacy Act, and how it may redefine ethics and the philosophy of life. After all, the development of these technologies is already beginning to stimulate contemporary philosophical discourses that question the likes of the telos of humanity and the verity of epistemological beliefs. Addressing AI is crucial today due to ethical concerns, employment concerns, data and privacy issues, transparency, and the global struggle for more power and wealth. Understanding the nature of AI ensures responsible development, encourages online safety and knowledge of privacy rights, and fosters global collaboration and discussion for the future of technology. 
One Planet podcast is supported by the Jan Mischowski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producers on this episode were Sophie Garnier and Sebastian Klassen. One Planet podcast is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Katie Foster. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.